Noah's Turkey. And I was standing among some of the ruins of the Roman Empire. As I said, it's one of the great nations of history. It's one of those things and one of those uh, civilizations, I guess, that we would say that uh, made a definitive impact on the world of its time. And even some of those impacts stretch to us today. I was in Turkey because I was on a tour going to the seven different churches that are represented in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation. As we made our way through the countryside, and again, we were there over what in America we call the 4th of July celebrations, uh, I was in a foreign country, which made me appreciate our country even more than I ever had before that. But it also brought some things to the surface for me that I think is pretty significant for us even today. As I made my way through this country, I was struck with the national pride of the Turkish people. Almost everywhere we went, we would find Turkish flags flying in the countryside. I mean, with no discernible population anywhere, even close by. And there would be this huge flagpole with a flag flying on it on a hill just off the road. Uh, hanging in the windows of people's homes. The Turkish national spirit uh, brought the American spirit to shame in my experience that week or those couple of weeks. Another thing that was striking for me to take that and set it aside for a moment was how disturbing it was that the very center of our Christian faith in those early years of the Christian movement as it went from Jerusalem and Jesus and those disciples and it began to just spread out in these concentric circles like a uh, throwing a rock into a pond and just one level after another as it spread out into Turkey and the center of the civilization of that time. Uh, and yet we were standing at what had been notable churches at one time and that now at this time they're little more than rocks in the ground because there's no discernible Christian face in the area. Those two things stand in stark opposition to me. That you have this body, this organism called the church that seems to have disappeared off of the map in that area. What's left are the ruins of that and yet we're also celebrating uh, a national day of pride in a foreign country. All of that brings me together and it coalesces for me into this kind of a mass of stuff that we need to deal with today. Um, I'm, I'm struck with one of the comments that was made by one of my favorite preachers of all time, one of the best, probably I think the best preacher of my generation. And I sat in a room with him a number of years ago now with just a handful of other men and we were looking at some Old Testament text and we were especially looking at some of the minor prophets and here's what that preacher said to us, guys, everybody loves it when the priest is shuffling showbread. That's an Old Testament reference you can go dig on a little bit. It's the fun part, it's the feel good part of our faith. Everybody loves it when the priest is shuffling showbread, but you let Amos get loose on the steps of the Capitol and people have a problem with that. The reality is that sometimes there needs to be a prophetic word spoken into the midst of great celebration to make sure that we don't lose track of ultimate truth. Because if we lose track of ultimate truth, we will be 
whether it's as a church or as a nation, we will be the ruins that history just walks past and God moves on to use somebody else. Proverbs chapter 14 helps us with some of this. As we have been coming through this July 4th weekend and we've been celebrating and we talk about the greatness of our country, I want to question a little bit. I'm not challenging the greatness of America. I do want to question a little bit what we mean by that and especially how we go to define what we mean when we say America is a great country. Now, maybe you're not sitting out there saying that, but that's generally the the spirit of this holiday season. Teresa and I were watching last night a recording of some documentary programming that I think must have been on during the Memorial Day weekend time frame. And it was a recounting uh, by some of the participants of the D-Day invasion during World War II. I was reminded as we watched that and listened to the voice of these men now well advanced in years as they recounted the horrors of what they went through that day as they went ashore. It took me back to the grave sites and the caskets by which I stood through the years as I've buried a number of the men from that what we call the greatest generation. I did a funeral for a man who was a genuine war hero at the National Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas. I helped to bury a man who was a a pilot for one of those bombers that took off from England and went and bombed Germany and came back and he received numerous commendations and medals for the bravery that he showed in his unique ability landing that bomber on a dead stick after being shot up by the Germans on his way back. I buried a man who became a friend of mine before he died who was one of the captains in that group that fought what is known as the Battle of the Bulge. And I listened to him as he recounted to me the difficult choices and the the way those difficult choices of sending men across enemy lines to their certain death and the, the way that resonated with him through the years as he remembered having to give the order knowing he was sending those men to die. Those people who have paid the price for us to be able to celebrate the greatness of America on this holiday weekend need us to remember what it takes for us to be called a great nation. But I wonder, what is the definition that we use to determine greatness? And maybe a better way to ask that is to ask the question that goes with it, which is, how does God determine greatness when it comes to measuring nations? For us, we look maybe to the wealth that we have as a people. We may look to the technological advances that we've had through the years, the Industrial Revolution, Silicon Valley more recently, and all of those things, the space program that opened the door for all kinds of simple pleasures for us like microwave ovens and all that stuff. And we look at ourselves and we think of all the greatness that we have contributed to society that helps this world to be a better place. What is it that we look to to call ourselves a great nation. We have to understand and admit that the term great points us to a very relative measure. 
Great is largely in the eye of the beholder. Let me give you an example of that. Have you been watching the World Cup? That is just not acceptable. That, that level of response is not, You realize if there's any sports in heaven, it's got to be soccer. You do know that, right? So our United States has been involved in the World Cup, the once every four year world soccer tournament, nation against nation. All the best in the world do this. It is, for the rest of the world, it's a huge thing. America is finally catching up about a hundred years late. But this week, the American soccer team went into battle against a Belgian team that was far superior to us, at least according to those who put all that kind of stuff together. And yet, for 90 minutes plus, we went at it head to head against them. And the hero, the man of the match, was the American goalkeeper who blocked everything that came at him, with two exceptions. But... He set a World Cup record for saves in a game. Now, that's a significant thing because of the way the rest of the world plays. This guy, Tim Howard is his name. By the way, I've read this week that he's a believer. He knows the Lord. An incredible kind of a testimony. But this guy is a great goalkeeper, right? Everybody go like this, whether you know soccer or not. That's a true statement. The rest of the world agrees. Okay? But... As greatness goes, that's a relative statement because my son is a great goalkeeper. Well, he's 31 now, but he was great when he was six. You should have seen him. (laughs) You see what I mean? The difference? uh, He was a great goalkeeper, my son was, until he broke his collarbone, and then he got afraid, and then he was horrible. I had to move him someplace else on the field. But that's not anything compared to this world-class performance that the American goalie gave this week. See, greatness is kind of a relative term. And we can kind of make up what we want it to mean, and we do that a lot. And so we we have award ceremonies for people who seem to have it going on. And bottom line is we need to come to some kind of a definition, especially if we're going to be rating the value or the importance of a nation. If we believe that America is a great nation, just insert here, and I absolutely do, If we believe that, we should have a good definition or standard for the term. So let's look at see what God has to say. How does God measure greatness? And does America stack up to God's definition of that term? Proverbs chapter 14 in verse 34 says this. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. I want to quickly get this out here on the table because it's what we have to work with as we look at this whole issue about us as a country and where we're going. How do we avoid being like the Roman Empire and the British Empire and the Spanish Armada and all of those things as we look backwards in history and see these great empires that now are just ruins on history's path? How do we avoid that? Righteousness is a term we need to embrace. We need to get it. It's one of those church words. Unless you tend to talk in churchy language, you probably didn't say righteousness this week. So let me boil it down. Okay, We'll just take the middle part out of the word, and that communicates pretty well. Righteousness, simply stated, is rightness. It is being right 
from God's point of view. It's a simple way to say it. It's not a simple way to live, but it's a simple way to say it. It is being right from God's point of view. So what does that mean? Practically speaking, how do we live out right so that God looks at us and says, that's right, that's what I had in mind. That's the word righteousness. You remember when Jesus was approached by a guy and the guy was maybe trying to trick him into something and maybe he was a little bit honest in his question, but he came to Jesus and he said, hey, what is the greatest commandment of all? Okay, now we would call it the Old Testament. He was looking back in the Hebrew scripture and he asked Jesus that question. What's the greatest commandment of all? You remember what Jesus said? I'm going to give you a two for one. It's a two for one day. The first one is what? Love your, well, let's see, love who? Love God, right? He quotes the Shema from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love there, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That word love there is a legal technical term. It means to give allegiance to. In other words, part of what it means to be right in God's eyes is that you get your worship right. And God has to be in first place. The other part of Jesus' answer also gives us a perspective here. In case you're wondering why I immediately jumped to Jesus in the New Testament. One of the things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount was, I didn't come to do away with and abolish the law and the prophets. I came to, what? Fulfill them. Which in this case very definitively means to fill them full of meaning for you. It is not simply going through the motions and checking off whether you're obedient to a law or not. It is a relationship-based kind of thing with God. So, Jesus, looking backwards and answering the question, the greatest commandment of all, he says, first of all, you have to love God. Put him where he belongs in your life, which is in the top position. And secondly, what was the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. So we, because we like bumper sticker theology, we just boil it down to say, love God, love people. Does that communicate for you? Hello. (laughs) Does that communicate to you? You recognize God's basic design. Jesus said, the two greatest commandments, all of the rest of them fall from these two. Love God, love people. That makes sense, right? All right. So if you live according to that, that's right. That's the life that God says, right. That's what I had in mind. So righteousness, if you'll let me boil it down to this today, we could get in a much more technical discussion here. This is the boiling down part. Righteousness that exalts a nation is that a nation lives so as God might say, right, you got it. Does that fit America today? If that is God's standard for greatness in measuring nations, how are we doing as a people? You see, the second part of this is important too. Righteousness exalts a nation. The word exalts means to move it to a visible position. It's, it's the picture of 
rising. The cream rises to the top. It's, it's, you become as you live in such a way that God says, that's right. That's what I had in mind. Our status elevates. Our exposure elevates. Our drawing ability elevates. But he flips the whole thing, Solomon does in this verse, when he says to us, but sin, what is sin? It's the opposite of rightness. It's the failure at righteousness. So whereas righteousness elevates us as a people, sin, now the word here in my translation says, is a reproach. Some of you will have a different translation that probably says is a disgrace. Both of those words capture the intent of this particular Hebrew word. The idea is just the opposite of the elevation. When we sin and when we miss God's standard, then we are disgraced in our sin. So which one of those two best fits America today? How... Does the world view us? But you really got to understand that the way the world sees us is not nearly as important as how God sees us. Righteousness. Rightness. With God. Before God. Elevates us. Sin casts us down. So here's kind of a summary of the verse. The idea here basically is that God measures the greatness of a nation by the way we deal with him and the way we deal with people. And it's not an either or, just for the record. The righteousness that he talks about here does not give us the freedom to say, oh yeah, look at all the great things we do for people. Many religious groups have gotten so far off of the gospel message because they've missed the God part of it and just decided we're going to serve people. But other religious groups, Baptists might fall into this, have gone to the level of saying, well, we're going to honor God, but we don't really care too much about people. But biblical righteousness pulls both in together and they carry equal weight in the discussion. Righteousness. God cares about how we handle him and how we handle people. So according to that standard, is America great in 2014? Let me give you an example of how serious this question is. It's a dangerous thing for a preacher on Independence Celebration Weekend to get up and be Amos on the the steps of the Capitol and give a prophetic word. One that challenges the status quo. But let me tell you why I felt like it was important for me to preach this sermon today. And by the way, just so that you know, I've toned this one down a lot from what I intended earlier in the week. Israel serves for us as exhibit A. I want you to take now and let's go to the book of Amos. And we'll be in Amos chapter 2 in just a few minutes. But before we get there, uh, I want to share a couple of other things with you here. To give you the the basis on how we get to where we're going to be reading here in just a few moments. Solomon 
in that passage back in Proverbs. That's in a section of the Proverbs that is attributed to Solomon. Solomon was king of Israel during its heyday. Aaron already talked a little bit about some of that for us, and so I'm not going to go back and replow that ground. But let me put it in perspective. The first king of Israel was Saul. Saul was followed by King David, and all of the great stuff that King David did, Solomon, his son, just amplified it even more. And during Solomon's reign, God blessed that group of people called the children of Israel, and they expanded their borders and expanded their influence. It was the heyday of the monarchy in Israel. And so in that section that Aaron read for us in that dedication of the temple and all of that, it was the time when national spirit was there and it was all driven by love for God and a service for God for these people who are his chosen people. And they all come together and they do that. And, and Solomon gives us great insight about all that they should do and how they should do it and, and how they should hold to God and all that. The only problem was Solomon wouldn't listen to himself. Before it's all said and done, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, did some of the dumbest stuff that anybody could do as a ruler. And in the process of that, his sons took over and made almost immediately a divided kingdom. And so the children of Israel were split north and south. In that split, the greatness of Israel as a nation took an immediate hit. So the northern kingdom, because they didn't like some of the stuff and some of the people of the southern kingdom, even though they were technically brothers, they set up their own system of worship. They set up their own places of worship. Solomon built a great temple, and it was relegated to just the temple for the southern kingdom, and the northern part did their own thing. And in the process of doing all of that and in that division, ultimately we find them over a 150-year roughly time frame, we find them just gradually disintegrating until finally in 722 that northern kingdom was taken away and just totally obliterated as a people. Some killed, some taken off into slavery and exile, never to gather together again, uh, together again as we find it in the Old Testament. This great nation under Solomon now was divided and much of it was gone. 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, we know it as Judah, suffered a similar fate. God, after warning them time and again through the prophets, stepped in through a foreign power and carried them off into exile. And in the midst of all of that stuff, over that time frame of roughly 150 years or so, God sent these minor prophets, we call them. Not minor because their message didn't matter, but minor because they're not the great prophets like Elijah and, you know, some of those from the early time we call the major prophets. These are the guys and they come on the scene, most of them. Jeremiah's on the scene for decades and these guys come in and they wash in and they give their message and then they're gone. The minor prophets. And that's where we pick up in Amos. Now, I go to Amos representative for the whole thing now. I don't want to go through all of the minor prophets. None of us could stand that kind of lengthy judgment sermon series. So let's let Amos speak for all of them today. And we find in Amos chapter 2, the first message from these minor prophets is captured in the voice of Amos. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Now, let me set the scene here. Amos goes to the steps of the capital and he begins to just kind of draw a circle around the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he talks about those people, those foreign 
powers who are on each of their borders. And he says, God's going to get you because you've broken his commandments. And he goes to the next nation. He says, and God's going to get you because you've done this. And he goes to the next one until finally he comes and he's drawn a circle all the way around Israel, except for south of them, which is Judah, which is their brothers. And so in chapter two, beginning in verse four, this is what Amos, actually God says through Amos to Judah, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. In other words, Amos, God speaking through Amos, says to the people of God in the southern kingdom, because you have abandoned God. Verse 5, so I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Righteousness failed and there was a price to be paid. Through all of this, all of this talking about the people around them, the people of Israel would have been cheering Amos on. You tell them, go get them preacher. We always love sermons that hack on our enemies. The problem with this one is Amos was not sent just to hack on the enemies. He had a message for Israel too. And so here's the second message we get. It's not pay attention to your worship. That was the first one. The next one now is pay attention to how you deal with people. So in chapter 2 verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And you can hear the crowd now as they go from pushing him on to Crying out against neighbors, now they fall deathly silent as he turns his attention to them. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, they live for themselves and they don't care who it hurts. Sounds a little bit like America as we read through this. In verse 7, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down before every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3 continues this. I like this one. (laughs) Well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Uh, By the way, he's talking to the rich ladies now. How do you like being called a cow? Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, Who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks. And the picture now is of them being conquered by a foreign power and being led away in procession as slaves. And you shall go out through the breaches, that is the breaks in the wall. Where they came in to conquer, that's where you'll be pulled out by the neck. Each one straight ahead and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Hear this, America. 
God will not allow you, us, to thumb our nose at him or mistreat people. History is littered with nations who are ruined because they ignored God. Amos chapter 6 now gives us the third message that judgment, in fact, will come. So in chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. In other words, their leisure time is totally tied up with them. For six who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. That's a contrast to those who are poor, who live out on the backside of the wilderness, whose skin cracks because of the dryness and the heat, the dust in which they live. The picture here is one of opulence and wealth and totally living for themselves. Verse 7. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And the message of the minor prophets to us in America today, in fact a great nation, is that if we do not live righteously as a people, we will be disgraced. And these few words that I've given today out of the mouth of Amos come screaming through the ages to us, bypassing one fallen civilization after another who chose to ignore who God is and his claims on them. Failure in living rightly brings ruin. That's the road trammel translation of Proverbs 14.34. Failure in living rightly brings ruin. Aren't you glad you came to church today? All this good news from church. I think it's important that we close today with how we respond to those truths. You should know that I am a very patriotic guy. I am grateful to live in this country. I believe we are a great nation. But I also believe that unless something changes about us as a people... God will either have to judge us or he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And God doesn't make a habit of having to apologize for stuff. As a people, we must, I'm talking about we, the church in America, we must take this seriously. Blind patriotism is a dangerous thing. You want a good case study on that? Go read about the church in Germany as one of the major collaborators with Hitler as he rose to power into what would be one of the most horrific approaches to dealing with people in all of history. The church in Germany was co-opted into Hitler's whole scheme and they went along willingly in the name of patriotism. We serve an authority higher than the United States of America. We serve a holy God who demands from us righteousness. So the question becomes for us, how do we respond in that? 
And the part of the answer is many people in America these days, in the church in America today, we just kind of do the chicken little approach. And our response is, oh, we wring our hands and, oh, it's just awful. What are we going to do? It's just all falling apart around us. Preacher, we're just, it's just, this is not the country that I grew up in. Okay? What are you going to do about that? I just, it's just nothing we can do. It's just falling apart. I don't believe, I don't agree with that. I don't believe that. We could just panic. We could just, you know, never waste an opportunity to panic. That's some people's whole approach to living. And so it's a bad situation. Oh my goodness. Well, that's not going to help us out any. So we could, well, we could do what one of the major news, one of the major conservative news outlets on TV does. We could just complain all the time. Them sorry, no good stinking. And you fill in the blank, whoever they are. We could just complain. Or maybe we could embrace hope. As a people of God, maybe that's a better option for us. Let me make sure that we get what hope is. Okay, This is, this is July. I always like it when July rolls around. Because I know that professional football is right around the corner. It's July. They're going to be going to the training camp soon, and we're going to get to see, and the Texans and the Cowboys are going to play each other in the Super Bowl. It's going to be a great season. Now, that's, that's delusional thinking, okay? We call that hope. It's wishful thinking. If you think the Cowboys are going to win more than they lose, that's just nuts. It's wishful thinking. We... Wish, we hope. But you see, biblical hope is totally different than that. Biblical hope is, this is my definition, it is confident assurance based on the revealed word of God. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. That's not wishful thinking. That's a certainty because Jesus Christ declared it to be so. So let's hold on to hope. In the midst of of a nation that seems to be running as fast as it can away from God as a church, as the church, let's hold on to hope. Because there is that message from Amos and others, but I'll limit it to Amos here. In chapter 9, listen to what Amos says to those same people who he's already said God is going to carry you away because you have not been right in the end, when it's all said and done, chapter 9, verse 11, In that day I will rise, uh, raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And I could keep reading all the way through verse 15. I won't in the interest of time. Here's the deal. God says when you get it right and when repentance comes and our righteousness then becomes that which we focus in on. He will step in and he will heal us. Which brings me right back to where we started today when Aaron stood here and he read for us in Second Chronicles chapter 7. If my people, when it's all going wrong for you, if my people who are called by my name, what does it say? Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Then I'll see what I can do. 
Is that what God says? That's not what God says. If they'll do these things, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Praise God. Failure is never final with God. I believe that America needs this message. But I'm going to take it even further than that. I think the church of America needs this message. Maybe it's time for us as a people to take off of our patri- to take off our patriotic suits and put on those that are destined for righteousness. And then let's see what God might do with our country. Under God, let's not be the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire or the British Empire, all of which were great in their day, but they walked away from God if they ever knew him at all. What's your part in that? Just as God will look at a nation and say, are you right by my standard? God looks at you and says, are you right by my standard? Just for the record, you can't get right with God without Jesus Christ stepping in for you, which he's already done. What do you do with Jesus in all of this? Let's pray. And as you pray, let me just bring the message home for you and put it right squarely in your lap. What do you do with a message like this? The answer to that, I think, has to be, as an individual Christian, I will do all I can to be what God called me to be. The best way for me to say all that I can do is for me to just surrender to him. And let him take me through this life. As a church, if we are full of individuals who do that, and then as a church we do that, and then we step out. This is part of our vision statement. and We step out of the walls of this church into a community that is part of the nation that was once great and yet now seems to be running away from God. We step out into that same community with the influence that comes with walking with Jesus Christ. This problem is huge in America. It is bigger than you or me or even us. But it's not bigger than God. So we go and we run to hope. If my people who are called by my name, that's you and that's me. Let's stand together. Father, take this 